press on. We press on because that's the chapter that we've just read. Now, we are going through Philippians, and um, for those who haven't been here uh, before, uh, and visitors or people who've been away, there's a logical flow to Paul's writing in this letter. We're in the second half of chapter 3, and so it, what, what this chapter is shaped by is what has preceded it and where Paul is going, of course. And so we come into the second part of chapter 3. Chapter 3 is a past, a present, and a future chapter, if you notice that. Last week, in the first half of this chapter, Paul was reflecting on his past. He was listing all of his social and ethnic achievements uh, as a Pharisee, as a, as a, as a Jew, as a, as a teacher of the law. And he concluded that in the light of Christ, all of it is as though garbage compared to knowing Christ. That was the conclusion that Paul made. So he reflects on his past. And now in the second half that we've just had superbly read by Mike, he's reflecting on the present in verses 12 to 16 and then the future in verses 17 to 21. And he concludes this. The surpassing greatness of knowing Christ my Lord, he says. This is the energy by which he tells the church and tells us to press on. He uses the word press on twice. He presses on to spiritual maturity. And it's sometimes we might just gloss over that word maturity but think it's just high-mindedness or seriousness. But he, he, Paul is using it in such a way as to talk about the social and the moral and the spiritual life. A movement towards these things, right? And for the future, he talks of two destinies. The destiny of Christ's opponents, verses 18 and 19, and verses 20 and 21 of Christ's followers. Two destinies. So we see the flow of time, the past, the present, and the future. Now, we all have a past, eh? Some of you little minxes out there, you're the 60s generation, I know. And yet, here we are in the present. And we all have a future for sure. How many in the world do you think fulfill verse 19? Their destiny is destruction. Their God is their stomach. <laughs> Put your hands up if you like food. Yeah, I thought so. Right. Maybe it means something else. Um, and their glory is their shame. Their mind, Paul says, is set on earthly things. What does that mean? And it's hard for us who follow Jesus today because this is our problem too, right? We are also obsessed with these things. And I guarantee that some of you have said about someone else, oh, that Richard, I'll use me as an example, right? That Richard, he's so heavenly minded. What's the, what's the conclusion to that sentence? He's of no earth. Paul is arguing the exact opposite. Isn't that interesting? Because practicality trumps everything in our day. That's why. We need more heavenly minded people, actually, to, to show us the things of God, to tell us what he said. Now, for all the Bible detectives out there, I want you to have, well, you, maybe you've noticed, and for those that haven't noticed, I want you to see the link between Jesus and his temptations. 
Did you notice? Now, the temptations are told in Luke chapter 4 and Matthew 4, but I'm going to refer to Luke briefly. Because the destiny of Christ's opponents satisfy the criteria for two out of the three temptations of Jesus in the wilderness. Look at this, the first one. The manipulation of the material world in order to satisfy all physical desires. The turning stone to bread, the illegitimate self-feeding. That's what it's speaking into. The stomach, the stuff of our flesh. When we illegitimately claim things for ourselves that God hasn't sanctioned, we rebel. We're in rebellion. So that's the God of the stomach one. And the second one is the clamor for illegitimate success and adulation. Jesus was offered all the kingdoms of the world by who? The one who ruled the world? The one who owned the world? The one who made the world? No. The illegitimate usurper who was tempting Christ in the wilderness, the devil himself said, I will give you what's not mine if you worship me. In other words, I will give you control over all social interactions for manipulation purposes so that you are the greatest. But he has no right to say that to Jesus. And so... The second part in verse 19, their glory is their shame, their self-promotion, their own desire to be at the top of the tree, right? And it's all speaking to us because Jesus went through the wilderness for us. But you might be asking, what about the third temptation, Richard? Well, that was covered in the first part of chapter 3 that we looked at last week. This is when Paul says, look out for the dogs. I haven't got the dog here to bark on my pulpit like I had last week. Little toy dog that yapped. It wasn't ferocious at all. But Paul goes on to use this metaphor to talk about those mutilators of the flesh, those who want to turn Christian Gentiles into Jewish Christian Gentiles by following the law of Moses. And Paul uses very strong language, doesn't he? Those who effectively, willfully, or in ignorance distort the truth about the nature and character of God. That's what this is about. What is the truth of God? What does God say? How will we hear what God says? And so that is the third temptation. Deception about who God is. Let's use contemporary language. Misinformation about who God is. Fake news about who God is. Beware of the dogs, Paul says. Because there is something true to hold, isn't there? About who Jesus is. His identity. The Son of God. The second person of the Trinity, right? There is something to know. We don't just get to make it up as we go along, do we? So it's deception about who God is what God has said, what God requires. And so Paul is applying in this one chapter all three temptations that the human race, that you and I, always fail in the social, the physical, and the theological worlds that we live in. And so whenever we manipulate the material world for our own satisfaction, Whenever we self-promote using, let's say, devilish dysfunctions and disorders, whenever we twist the truth of God about what he said in Scripture to suit our own needs, uh, we're on very, very dangerous ground, right? So we have to work hard at this. 
But these are the things that Jesus faced in the wilderness for us. Now, now, just as a quick quiz here, is there anything outside of those three categories that we see on the screen? The social world, the material world, the theological world. It covers all the bases, right? Every single base is covered. And Jesus faced all of these in the wilderness, and yet, Hebrews says, he was tempted in every way that we are, yet he did not sin. In material, social, and theological ways, he was tempted. Don't you worry about that. He was tempted, all right. And yet he did not sin. The devil loses in the wilderness and he loses on the cross. And so Paul can say, press on towards the goal. Great clip to play, Andy, as well, from Chariots of Fire. Press on towards the goal in Christ Jesus. Now, if you know your propaganda theory, and I encourage you to get to grips with propaganda theory, you may have heard this line that says, incite the passions control the man. Propaganda 101. Incite the passions, control the man. In other words, when we give in to all of these things, we're not free. We're not libertarians. We're not free to do whatever we want. We're controlled. We're enslaved. And yet, what does Galatians 5.1 say? Can you remember? It was for freedom that Christ has set us free. It was for freedom that Christ has set us free. Now, bearing in mind it's the eve of All Hallows' Eve today, Halloween tomorrow, this is a dedicated day to the demonic. The principalities and powers are real, and they lull us into false sense of security all the time. It is not neutral, that's for sure. And we should never pretend that it's neutral. For Christ has set us free, if you know him today. It was for freedom that he came to set us free. And so, in the meantime, Paul is pressing on, and he uses this twice in verse 12 and verse 14. This is the idea that Christian faith is never meant to be static, Yes, you're meant to take times of retreat and rest and recovery. But Christian faith is never static in its, in its very DNA. And neither should we be static in our faith. And the idea of pressing on, there's a wonderful um, description of what, what the word captures as Paul was trying to encourage the church to keep pressing on. The idea of being ag in aggressively chasing after your prey. It's like a hunting metaphor, but you're actively, aggressively hunting after the thing that you're trying to catch. And the Christian life is a growing life in mature living and Christian doctrine for sure, because biblical faith is dynamic. We don't just absorb a set of propositions and say, job done, ticked that box, I can move on now. It's dynamic. The Word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword. That's why Christians should never, ever be satisfied with yesterday's grace. Have you experienced grace? Most of you will have, if not all of you. And if you, well, if you say you haven't, then you don't know you have, but you have, right? You're, you're still alive. That's a sign of God's grace for a start. But we've all experienced grace. 
But like the Israelites collecting manna in the wilderness, they were only allowed to collect enough for the day, right? And so we have enough grace for today, and we should never be satisfied merely with yesterday's grace. If we apply that to our dinner table and the God of our stomach, right? If you were only satisfied with last year's Christmas dinner and you never ate again, you've got to pursue your dinner like a hunter chasing its prey, right? So we press on and we keep discovering the endless riches of Christ. And so what we do is we forget the past, is what Paul says. We strain on. We strain on pursuing what lies ahead and encounter grace upon grace because there's enough grace for today. But why grace? I want to say a comment about grace. Because we need grace to stand in the battleground of the world today. If we believe in the principalities and powers and the temptation that the devil invites us into in so many ways, social, material, theological, just a slight distortion here, a slight untruth there, a slight manipulation there, if we're not aware of the principalities and powers and the battleground of this world, a battleground where Satan does tempt us with these things, Even though we're not perfected yet, one day we will. That's the promise of Scripture. That's the work that Christ is doing amongst us. Sanctification, perfecting us to perfectly worship Him. But for now, we trust and follow in faith the one who is perfect and the one who did not fail. And this is what I want you to notice about the Christian life that Paul is talking about here, church. The Christian life is not easy. There's extreme demand. It has a cost. The road is narrow. The cost is high. The demand is extreme. But church, what else is extreme in the Christian life? Because we're not up to this job, are we? We need the Spirit's filling. We need grace day by day. We need to know the love of God in Christ for us. We pray in the Lord's Prayer, Father, forgive me. Uh, you know, or, or Jesus says on the cross, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. We pray in the Lord's Prayer, forgive us our sins. Because we know the truth about us. But the greater truth is about God. That he's willing and inviting us to forgive our sins. So we follow the one who did not fall. Extreme demand and extreme mercy. Both are found in Christ. Extreme demand and extreme mercy. That's why the Israelites, as I said, were instructed to collect manna enough for one day, just one day, not to hoard it. I'll be honest with you, I know people who are hoarding food already because of the rumors and facts of the shortages that are potentially coming. I don't know, should a Christian do that? How do we trust God in this kind of scenario that we've never really been in before? How do we trust God for this? So we are promised, though, that there is enough grace for today. We resist the impulse to hoard, as the Israelites did, 
and they were judged. And likewise, just as we eat every day to satisfy our own hunger, so we trust God every single day to meet us in grace. So one of the things that you can guarantee, you know, they say that there are, well, they say that there are two things that are certain in life. Anybody care to say what they are? Death and taxes, but that's not wholly true. You see, it's fake news once again, misinformation, a slight untruth. It's two out of three, John, for sure. Three things are certain in life, church. Death, taxes, 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 not taxis, death and taxes. And what else is certain in life? The love of God for us. Absolutely certain. Right? So it undermines the cynical idea of just death and taxes. It's like that. Who decided that's what life was about? So the, the old Israelites became distrustful. Distrust leads to anxiety. Anxiety leads to faithlessness. And whatever does not proceed from faith, biblically, biblically defined faith, is sin. Jesus said it. If it doesn't proceed from faith, it's sin. That's a huge challenge for us, right? Can't do it on our own. And it's the same for us. Now, we don't wander around the the Sinai wilderness, although I have done that on a few occasions, and it is a marvelous place to be. But what would our danger be? What would the thing that we would need to look out for be? Not collecting manna in the wilderness, but I think in our day and age, and we've heard this a million times before, complacency complacency because we have everything we need most of us live really good lives not without its struggles and everything else but it's been okay right this has been the best 70 years in world history (laughs) it's amazing but complacency is our threat our danger and this can lead us into the destruction and shame that Paul talks about in verse 19 I want to quote two guys now who you may or may not know. Uh, One guy's an American uh, pastor theologian called Doug Wilson. He said, the world never loves Christians who mean it. I'm going to say that again because that's profound. The world never loves Christians who mean it. Need a drum roll for that one, Andy, I think. And Francis Schaeffer an amazing man of his own time as well, a couple of, well, a generation ago, warned us how we can be um, bought off with personal peace and prosperity. We can be bought off, even as Christians, especially as Christians. So I'm going to finish now, but I want to share two stories from, um, I've just finished watching the, the Rings of Power Lord of the Rings on Amazon Prime. Has anyone else seen it? You've seen it, a couple of people. Have you, has anyone seen Lord of the Rings? Have you heard of J.R.R. Tolkien? Anyone? Anyone out there? Through the fog? Well, anyway, it's okay. It's like a second division, sort of, if you're going to make a football analogy. It's like, it's like Colchester United compared to Liverpool at the top of the... Oh, they're not at the top of the Premier League. Um, but it's okay. It's eight, eight episodes in this thing, right? And there were two standout moments for me. In episode one, Galadriel says to Elrond, evil does not sleep, Elrond. It waits. 
And in the moment of our complacency, it blinds us. Wow. It reminds me of Genesis 4.1. Sin crouches at the door. Like a crouch, to, to be crouched is to, to be ready to pounce. It's an active waiting. It's waiting to pounce. It waits. That's why Paul tells us to press on like a hunter pursuing a catch. Not in anxiety or fear or dread, but so that we win the prize. The medal that was brought to us earlier. Not because we've earned it, because we pressed on. Because we believed Christ at his word. We trusted everything that he said. Christ, church, Christ is our only hope. And because it's Halloween tomorrow, I want to mention another part from the Lord of the Rings, Rings of Power. In episode four, the orcs who symbolize the demonic world, okay, the demons, the devil, everything devilish and diabolical, they were chasing two boys through a dark wood, right? And the boys knew they had to get out of the wood and into the forest clearing in the sunlight where the orcs could not go because they cannot abide the light. So they had to get there, and they just made it into the clearing, into the light. And you see the orcs charging to the edge of the forest, and they grind to a halt, and they grind and gnash their sharp, pointy, yellowy teeth. And, and they kind of just gnash and do this with their hands and snarl away and fire a couple of arrows at the boys, but the arrows miss. And the boys know they're safe. What did they have to do? Step into the light and evil stops. It has boundaries. God limits evil for us so that we're not destroyed. But you have to step into the light. Jesus said, I am the light of the world. It's our church logo. Nearly said slogan then, slogan and logo. It's our church logo. When we step into Christ our light, the principalities and powers are reined right in. Doesn't mean to say they won't be back, because they will be back. But Christ is our shield and our high tower. That's why we must press on. And as we remain in this light, especially in the light of uh, tomorrow's um, Halloween day, evil is restricted, disempowered, and seen for what it is, pathetic and cowardly. But Christ is rescuing us from all of these things. That's why Psalm 18 verse 19 says, He brought me into a broad place. He rescued me. Say this for yourselves. He brought you into a broad place. He rescued you. Why? Because he delights in you. Can you imagine God delighting in you? <laughs> it's quite something. Because we like to think of God as a headmaster. But he ain't. He brought you to a broad place because he delights in you. That's why Paul concludes, Therefore, my brothers and sisters, you whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, stand firm in the Lord in this way, my dear friends. And we pray, Lord, all glory to you, Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. God bless you, church.